for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. But what solidified it for me, and this is a great story, it was in it was in 1980. I'm 10 years old. My dad gets a sabbatical, you know, to go teach in the country of Algeria in North Africa. And think about this. And for any parents out there, would you do this? I'm a parent. I, I can't believe what my mom did. She put me on an airplane by myself at 10 from JFK Airport, you know, uh, uh, outside of New York City. I flew to Paris alone and then from Paris to Algiers. And then my dad picked me up and we drove 2,000 miles through the Sahara Desert in a Volkswagen minibus, just sleeping in desert oases. And I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. And from there, I was hooked on the Middle East. I wanted to do something kind of different and special. And I think, you know, that was kind of a seminal moment. I look back, everyone's got something. But for me, and, and I thought about this, you know, you know, when I served overseas in the Middle East for, you know, for uh, uh, almost 12 years, um, because that was really a moment that, that really stuck with me. Successful people learn how to make their minds work for them. We are Life Is Now, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Hey, everybody. David Dagan. Welcome to the Successful Mind Podcast. We have an amazing interview today with Mark Polymeropoulos. Did I say that right? Did you got it. I had my guys phonetically spell it for me, so I didn't mess it up. He's retired from the senior intelligence service ranks in 2019 after serving for 26 years in the intelligence community in the operational field and leadership assignments. He's an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection. Mark is one of the CIA's most decorated field officers and has honed a unique leadership style based on decision-making under pressure, inclusivity, camaraderie, and competition. His book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, I just want to hold this up here so everybody could see it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. It was published in uh, June of 2021 by HarperCollins. Mark's goal is to pass on this knowledge to the sports and business world who can benefit from his unique experiences serving his country in the hot spots of the world. Mark, welcome. It's fantastic and an honor to, to speak with you. How are you doing these days? I'm doing okay. I've, I've, I've certainly been busy. You know, uh, last night, let's say I spent with the Leesburg, Virginia Fire Department, okay. talking to firefighters about leadership. Um, couldn't have a better audience, you know, in terms of kind of, you know, uh, you know understanding these principles and how to, you know, lead elite teams, you know, in times of crisis. Um, and then a couple of days earlier, I was with the Marymount University baseball team, you know, Division Three baseball squad in Arlington. And so again, you know, I, I, I've given this talk so many times. I've done it with the, you know, with teacher with teachers to Fortune 500 companies, um, first responders. So it's the response has been tremendous. I've had a blast. That's a, that's fantastic. I mean, congratulations uh, to you. So. Let's get into the, tell us about the book. What is the book uh, about? What did you design it to do? What is the message that you want to get to people with this book? So it, it was really interesting. So at the end of my career, I served 26 years at CIA. And the bottom line is when I finally retired after all this time and after having multiple leadership jobs, I finally was a good leader. I was a really bad leader for most <laughs> of my career. And, and I kind of reflected on that. And what, what happened is, you know, particularly by, uh, you know, you know, by 2019, when I finally retired is, I'd honed a leadership style in terms of leading under crisis. Um, you know, this I talk about it when there's a lack of situational awareness. That's a buzzword we use, or there's yeah. ambiguity. It's 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 kind of embracing the gray. 
Um, and, and I found that I was able to really do this. And I started kind of dissecting this. And there was just some fundamentals that I would do with these teams. Again, at the end of my career, after having made so many mistakes, um, and, I, and I was thinking that, okay, you know, in retirement, I can pass this on. Look, I'm not going to go give this to the Harvard, you know, to Harvard Business School. This is not right. kind of a fancy leadership seminar. It's kind of true, tried and basic principles on how, you know, elite teams perform, uh, you know, you know when, when times are tough. And again, the response has been tremendous. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because um, I'm, in the, I'm in the business of helping people build businesses. And I've been doing that for 24 years. And most of the things that we help people do, they're ju- it's just not taught in school. They're not taught how to make money. Right. They're not taught real world marketing and sales. You know what? It's great in theory that what a lot of universities teach, but when it actually comes down to having a conversation with somebody on the street or building or running a team within your company, it's it's a it's a very different ball game. Did you? Was there anything like? Um, let me ask, let me think about how I want to phrase this question. In your youth, when you were growing up, was there anything that was leading you in this direction? I mean, how the hell does somebody yeah, sure. get to the CIA to begin with? Can you tell? Oh, me I that love story? this. No, this is a great question. And so, so one of the things also when I go out and I give these leadership talks, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm cheating a little bit because I do talk about public service and I talk about my life journey to CIA because you know one of the things I also want people to do is get excited about serving their country. And I don't care if you're doing it at the local level, the state level, the federal level, like I did. You know, be a cop, a firefighter, a teacher, but do something kind of to help you know help your your fellow citizen. And so, so I like telling the, the you know my life journey. And for me, it was you know I, I grew up a middle class kid from New Jersey. Um, I still have those kind of you know Bruce Springsteen you know roots. Nice. Um, my my dad was a college professor, but but in fact of the matter, my dad's a Greek background. So um, so we used to go back every summer to the to, to Greece. He had he had three months off. Um, it's a it's a great job being a college professor. So so the the so the first you know uh, kind of part of my my journey is that I traveled all the time. So when I was a really young kid, um, and of course my my entire professional career, I was overseas, just going to crazy places. But I think that what solidified it for me, and this is a great story, it was in it was in 1980. I'm 10 years old. My dad gets a sabbatical, you know, to go teach in the country of Algeria in North Africa. And think about this. And for any parents out there, would you do this? I'm a parent. I I, I can't believe what my mom did. She put me on an airplane by myself at 10 from JFK airport, you know, uh, uh, outside of New York City. I flew to Paris alone and then from Paris to Algiers. And then my dad picked me up and we drove 2000 miles through the Sahara Desert in a Volkswagen minibus, just sleeping in desert oases. And I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. And from there, I was hooked on the Middle East. I wanted to do something kind of different and special. And I think, you know, that was kind of a seminal moment. I look back, everyone's got something. But for me, and, and I thought about this, you know, you know, when I served overseas in the Middle East for, you know, for uh, uh, almost twelve years, um, because that was really a moment that that really stuck with me. So, so that kind of inspired the dream, right? You wanted yep. to figure out a way to get in there. So, in w- what was the route that you took to get into the sea? Sure. So military you know, or or no, no, I was not. So it, it's you know, it's the only job I ever had. So I, you know, I went to undergrad and grad school at Cornell University, and there was a career, you know, center. And I remember, uh, you know, I graduated in 1992. I remember when I went for my interview, there was protests on campus against the CIA. So there's a security officer with an earpiece. As I walked in, I'm thinking, what the hell am I getting myself into? Um, and I, so I just interviewed for a job there. I wanted to do public service. I was kind of, I'd broken it down to either the CIA, the DEA, the FBI, um, something like that. And, and, you know, CIA was the first uh, organization I, I, uh, I interviewed with. Um, and after a tremendously long background process, again, because of all my kind of, you know, my, my Greek background, 
um, about 18 months later. And a lot of after I graduated, sitting around in my basement on my parents' house in New Jersey, my father ready to kill me because I had no job. I think I was working at the Banana Republic. Um, but okay. I finally got hired in, in, in January of 1993. Um, you know, January uh, uh, 3rd, in fact, was my first day uh, at CIA. And it's the, it's the only job I really ever had, 26 years. Wow, that's incredible. Did you have to, I heard somewhere that, so you speak multiple languages, correct? Well, I learned, you know, so, so for CIA, you know, I learned both Arabic and Spanish. And so, um, you know, Arabic was, this, you know, it, it was a pretty tough kind of two-year slog, um, which I never mastered. I tried. I was not a great linguist, but, you know, as, a, as, a, as an operations officer, and we can talk about, you know, that in a bit, what I did, but you have to speak, the, you know, uh, the language in the country where you're serving. So I, I went through a two-year language program. That's it. It's all you do. For two years, you learn a foreign language. So, so first they teach you how to be in the CIA, and then you go through two years of school. Right. You don't even go into the field. You go right into school to learn how to speak another language for two years. That's right. So what, what happens is, you know, for the operational side of the house, you go to basically a one-year training program, and it's, you know, you get sent down to a, a you know, a not-so-secret anymore military base, um, or, you know, it's CIA base. And so you learn, you know, tradecraft training. You learn how to be a, an intelligence officer. Um, and that, that has to do with, you know, surveillance detection or how the, the whole process of recruiting, you know, a, a foreigner, a, a spy, which yeah. is, which is really interesting and in how you get someone to betray their country. You have to you know, kind of identify their motivations. It's, 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 it's frankly a very, I would say it's a, it's a, it's a psych 501 class, not a one-on-one class, or it's a master's degree in sales, but ultimately you're taught that for a year, then you come back and you have one or two more years, depending on the language of training. So, so it's a hell of a long process. and you know, there's a reason for it because we want to send people out to the field who are prepared, but there's also a weeding out process. You know, yeah. you got to want this. And I, you know, I've told people, and then, and then you go into a job where you work day and night for the rest of your career. So it's a, it's a pretty unique profession. So I want to ask you a question. Um, it's, it's interesting. I was interviewing somebody uh, who was part of uh, the Pineapple Express, getting, right. getting people out of Afghanistan after we kind of, in my opinion, blundered that uh, that exit. And one of the things that he was explaining to me was this, this idea, this habit that we seem to have been forming probably he, according to him, it goes back to Vietnam where we're really betray a lot of these people that we get on that are helping us right in other countries, helping us do the, the missions that we're supposed to do. And then we just totally abandon them. Um, what do you, what is your thought on that? Well, my thought, I have, I have some pretty, uh, uh, you know, pretty direct um, responses to this. And in fact, I, I think I spent probably several, you know, days or weeks on every network talking about this uh, during the kind of the box withdrawal, because at the end of the day, I, you know, I ran, a, I ran a CIA paramilitary base for a year. I was the base chief for a year okay. in Afghanistan. I had 20 Americans and I had 1,000 Af Afghan indigenous fighters. And I'm not here today without the heroism, not of, not of my fellow Americans who were heroes, but of the Afghans who we went out and patrol with, who protected us uh, at the base, who were, you know, kind of our brothers in arms. And so, you know, the idea that we would, we would abandon any of these uh, individuals, um, you know, I think really kind of hit, really, you know, hit us hard in the heart. Um, and I think that's why a lot of us were very vocal, both veterans and, and you know, former intelligence officers as well, uh, uh, because, you know, we have a moral obligation to these individuals. And um, not, the, not the finest moment, I think, uh, in American history. There's so many reasons how this went wrong over both administrations. This is a, yeah. uh, I'll make an apolitical statement that both Trump and Biden botched this massively. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, the, the, you know there, there, is a, there is a moral 
um, part of this that I think is, uh, is really important. This has to do with just, you know, uh, understanding who you fought with. And, you know, you look to your left and your right every day when you're in Afghanistan and our Afghan allies were there for us. So in that experience and, and the way that, that we came out of it, did that in any way shape the way that you viewed leadership skills? Oh, I mean, I think I, you know, my, my experience in Afghanistan certainly did. Um, oh my goodness. Tell us I mean, how? Oh, so, you know, so I, I the, you know, one of the, one of the things I, I talked about in the book, but I'll never forget flying in. So this was, you know, I, I, I went to Afghanistan several times, but the, the really kind of the biggest chunk was a one, a one year deployment. That's a hell of a long time in 2011, when I was a base chief in Eastern Afghanistan, as an aside, I remember when I, I came home from work one day, my wife uh, retired from the agency as well. So she understood the business, but I said, Hey, look, I, you know, I've got to go off again to Afghanistan, something I really wanted to do for some, some really compelling reasons. Some of my friends had been killed there. Um, and she said, where are you going? And I said, well, it's a place called Shkin in Paktika province. And she Googles it. And there's a Time Magazine article and says, that's the most dangerous place on earth. <laughs> she was like, what are you doing? Um, but, but so I remember flying in there and I was a fairly experienced officer. You know, I was at the GS-15 level. That's the equivalent of a colonel in the military. Flying in middle of the night in, in, a, in a helicopter, blacked out. The base is taking incoming fire. I'd been a leader before. And I was thinking to myself, what in the hell have I gotten myself into? Yeah. Um, and so I still had that kind of that pucker factor. And because I had 20 Americans and, and, and a thousand Afghan indigenous personnel um, who depended on me. And I knew also that every day would be different, you know. And so, so you know, when you talk about some of the things, you know, well, what I talk about in my book, some, you know, some of the character traits that I really kind of admired and, and tried to adhere to as, as a CIA officer, one was humility. Um, because because any, you know, you know, you can you can have a tremendous operational success one day, but the next day, you know, a uh, hundred, you know, uh, uh, or you know, uh, 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 a rocket comes in um, and kills one of your, you know, one of your Afghan indigenous personnel, which happened. Um, and so, you know, humility was something that I think was was, you know, uh, that something I learned in, in that deployment. And well, that was a that was an incredible year, something I'll I'll never forget. And as I tell people about what kind of serving in Afghanistan did for me, I I, I felt differently about myself, both good and bad. But I, I felt that I did had done something pretty remarkable, remarkable, and I was pretty proud of. Of what we all accomplished there, I still, you know, keep in contact with my team all the time. So, as a person that was raised in the Midwest, so to speak, right? Um, I I was in the military for a short period of time, and uh, in the time that I was in there, I got to see some things that really astounded me. I was the, I was in Germany in 1986, in the Cold War, um, and when I first got there. There was a big bungle that happened um, on Brian Main Air Base. There was a, it was it was a terrorist attack that nobody knew about here in the states that happened. And they what they did was this was what we were told when we were because we were actually did we didn't go to our our uh, our place of duty at the time. They took us up to they they shipped us to Berlin for a week. But but here's what happened. Uh, there was, I guess, black uh, black sites that people couldn't go to, like bars and such that that you could not frequent because they were known terrorists hanging out. Huh, right. So this guy goes, he goes anyway, and this woman uh, starts hitting on him. He thinks he's going to get sex from this woman. She takes him in her car, and she is, she's a terrorist. She's part of a terrorist group, and she kills him wow. in the car. They take his uniform, they put it on another guy, they take that guy's car. And they put a bomb under it and they drive it under Rhine Main Air Base and they put it in front of the embassy there. It was designed to go off at nine o'clock in the morning during some meeting that was supposedly going to happen. But it went off, it went off the wrong time. It went off at like 3 a.m. 
shattered windows. Nobody died. So it was a, it was an interesting thing. I had never experienced anything like this. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old going on 21, um, going overseas. And I think it's going to be a party, right? Because right. it's the cold war, right? I mean, I didn't was, I, I heard about Vietnam because my father was in Vietnam, but I didn't understand what war was. I was a kid, you know, happy go lucky. Like I'm going to go in the military and see the world and have a good time and party and shoot guns and, and, and have fun. And the guys and the gals that I was in with also, I was an MP, um, they basically had the same kind of idea. Right. And when we got over there, we found out very quick that we lived in a very different world. Right. Um, we had to go through uh, terrorist training, which mm-hmm. woke us up to like the, the horrors of what it actually is and what's happening in these in these other countries. And I remember experiencing a fear that I had never experienced before. I would imagine you had to go through something like that yourself. And and here's my question. How did you, because from a leadership perspective now, right? how did you deal, how did you learn to deal with the fear? I mean, you're going into one of the places that's considered one of the most dangerous places on the planet. How did you handle the fear of that and the uncertainty of what it is that you are about to go into? So I I think the answer to that is, is everything's based on experience. And so first of all, fear is a good thing. Um, if, if you're not, if, if you know, if you're, if you're, if you don't have some kind, you know, some kind of, um, you know, fear factor in a dangerous situation, something actually is wrong with you. Um, you don't want to freeze up ever, but, but, you know, if the hair is standing up in the back of your neck, that means, you know, you probably, uh, uh, you know, your, your senses are, are, are reacting appropriately. But I think, you know, for me is, you know, it's all based on experience. So, you know, I wasn't in the military, I joined the CIA and off I go to the Middle East and, you know, early on or not early on, but, you know, it, you know, it, during my career, you know, several things happened. And so I was posted overseas, but I was involved, you know, uh, both, you know, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the lead up and then the invasion in Iraq. Um, I went to Afghanistan after 9-11, soon after 9-11, and then, you know, uh, uh, you know, obviously a decade later for a year. And I'd served in multiple Middle East assignments where we had a huge counterterrorism threat um, or a huge terrorism threat. And I, and I was actually a member of what we called our counterterrorism center. So that my job was running counterterrorist operations. Um, I had been in embassies. I have been in embassies where you know Al Qaeda, um, you know, uh, tried to attack uh, the facility with a car bomb. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't go off, but there was a firefight in the front. So all these experiences build up to where when I, you know, when I finally got to that that kind of the, the probably the seminal moment, which was that year in Afghanistan, I had I had a lot of experience. I still, you know, had those. You know, I still was nervous. Um, uh, but I think that you know what what what's critical as a leader when you have these things to fall back on, and that's why. You know, at CIA, it's a really interesting process um, in which you know everybody, of course, wants to get promoted and be become a leader very quickly. But there is something to be said for kind of a more slow, methodical rise in which you, yeah. you get so much experience in that. And by the end of my career, I would go into a CIA station. I say, "There's nothing going to happen today that I haven't experienced." And, and and most of the time, the way I reacted previously, I probably got it wrong. But this time, maybe I'm going to get it right. Um, so whether it was a cranky ambassador, it was, or there was a terrorist attack, whether it was one of my officers being killed, I mean, you know, really bad things happening, or, or maybe you know, a coup in a country. You right. look back and you're like, I've experienced this before. Or as a leader, the last point I'll say is, or you are mature enough and you're confident enough in yourself, as then you you'd say, actually, or I'll, or I'll call someone and ask them for help. Um, you know, you don't have that arrogance that saying that I'm gonna I'm gonna you know do this myself. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, it was. It was experience, but you know, I'll tell you, you know, one story on this is when when I was in an embassy and and the embassy was attacked, and we were breaking open the weapon safe, and I had to spin. If you remember, when you're in the military, especially as MP, there was there was a safe with a dial. Remember those dials? Yeah. You got to go left, right, left. 
I, my hand, I'm looking at it, and it, it. It's literally shaking violently. There's automatic weapons fire hitting our hitting our office. There's grenades, you know, uh, uh, being tossed in the top. A car bomb hits the back, doesn't doesn't go off, and I have to spin this damn lock. And I remember doing it, and I, and then I also remember getting everyone, you know, in the in the uh, in the station and having them put body armor on and handing out the weapons. And afterwards, and I was, I mean, you know, my heart rate went from zero to a billion. I was terrified. But afterwards, someone asked, "Say, hey, Mark, you know, you really kept cool in this." Um, again, it's a leadership principle in my book. I talk about winning an Oscar. It's how how you how you react in a crisis situation. And um, uh, but the key for me is that I had been in Afghanistan and Iraq before. You know, I had been shot at before. So while I was well, I was legitimately terrified. I'm not saying I was a tough guy, but I'd been in these experiences before. So I could I tried to control my heart my heart rate, my breathing, um, and and tried to kind of comfort everyone. Now, of course, I didn't say I, everything's going to be okay. I'm not lying to them. Right. Um, but it's, it's how you react in those situations, I think, really matters because, you know, you, there is a role uh, to play as a leader. If you panic, you know, everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. And when you when you were training uh, for the CIA, did they teach you things about fear? Did they teach you like I mean, there was there there. I mean, I remember when I went through through uh, basic training in AIT, they, they taught us about how to handle a situation where you were going to fight the enemy or, or whatever. It was like a proactive idea, but they, if I remember correctly, there wasn't anything like they didn't address fear from like a psychological perspective at all. And I was just curious if they did, because it seems to me that what you had to deal with was so much different from, and, and, and worse in a way, because it's not like you were just fighting this enemy. You then had to work with these people on a very logical and emotional level to get them to be on your side to do the things that you needed to do right. to help win the objective, right? Is that correct? Yeah. And so, I mean, again, the, the note, so, so in, in CIA training, the one thing you do, it's, it's kind of interesting. And all of this stuff, you know, I, I think that I, I hope the agency at some point kind of takes a look at a lot of these things because they, they seem counterintuitive. So as a CIA case officer, what I did is I, might, I was trained to operate on my own. So my job is to go out and meet an agent on the street to me to spy on the street. So I run a surveillance detection route. I do things to get myself clean, to make sure no one is following me. So maybe that's a four or five hour surveillance detection route, but it's all, all the decisions are based, you know, on, on, on my own. And there's kind of a decision matrix, if you, whether you, you have to determine if you have surveillance or not. Um, we're not taught though, you know, what happens when, you know, an embassy is attacked. So I think that, or, or, you know, or war zone operations, I think that's just based on, on experience. You know, I, you know, we do go through some very basic rudimentary weapons training. So, you know, before these deployments, I would go off and, and you, know, you know, shoot an M4 or go through kind of, uh, you know, basic M4 um, uh, training for, for a week or two. Same thing with, a, with you know, with a sidearm, with a, with a Glock and a shotgun. But, and this is, but it, that's primarily defensive training. You know, again, CI, we're not, there's, this is not a direct action kind of tactical uh, type of, of job. Um, but ultimately, again, it goes back to just kind of pure experience. Um, and you know, there's nothing that beats that. And, you know, that's what I, what I, I would try to tell my officers as I got older in my career too, is everyone wants to, you know, you know, you know, kind of rise up super, super fast. And what, one thing the CIA, I think I d they do do right. It frustrates some younger officers because it's not the same in the business world. You can have a superstar get elevated very quickly at a young age at right. CIA. It's much harder to, because they really do value that just that kind of hard, hard fought, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh grinding it out field experience. Yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, that's, that's meeting hundreds of agents that's dealing with different liaison services, going through incredibly different experiences all over the world. That's what makes a great officer. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that really is great about your book, because you bring that experience to people and you've actually experienced things that are, that are way more on the opposite side of 
fear and uncertainty and how to have to move through it than they're ever going to experience in business, um, which they have to do every day, right? Like every business person has to deal with uncertainty. They have to deal with the leadership. They have to deal with people and problems, fixing problems, solving problems on a, on a consistent basis. How did you, so tell us the story about what happened, how you ended up having to leave the CIA. Oh, sure. So this is this is kind of the the uh, part of the uh, uh, of my life journey that's not in the book, and I did this on purpose. Um, I really wanted this to be a leadership book, and and despite what I'm going to say now, because I wasn't treated, um, you know, uh, uh, in such a fine manner by the CIA medical staff, and I'll tell that story. But I really do believe CIA is an indispensable organization for U.S. national security, and I think that you know it's it's hard because you know you know CIA doesn't get you know a pat in the back for any successes because we can't tell anyone. Right. But any failures get splashed all over kind of, you know, the, the planet. Um, and that's frankly, you know, that one, of the, one of the groups I work with on leadership now is law enforcement. Um, because again, you know, and, and when you can say very clearly, yes, there should be reform in law enforcement. But you know what? We need to have the police on the streets. You right. cannot abolish the police. Uh, uh, that doesn't make any sense. And so that's why I think my, my message to them that I appreciate what they do has been, um, and, it's, and it's an apolitical message, has been, uh, has been so, so, you know, well-received. Um, but I, you know, I think that you know, you know, one of the things as a uh, as a CIA officer is that you kind of, you know, you, you learn over time that you don't need that kind of affirmation, that any kind of public affirmation. Um, uh, and again, it's just this kind of absolutely kind of unique, strange job in which you know you have to be able to to have that kind of in, in you know inner strength um, where you don't need the, the American public to kind of pat you on the back. Um, but again, it's it's an indispensable institution that I think the country cannot live without. Yeah, but what happened to you though that caused you to have to leave? Right, it's really a testament to you and self leadership in what you had to do to navigate that and to and to actually. Sure. So, so you, see, you see, I'm avoiding talking about it. No, <laughs> well, if you don't want to talk about it, no, I'll no, no, no. I joke around. I joke around and say this because again, the message of the book, I you know, I want people to to really, uh, um, you know, uh, be positive towards public service. Okay, so for me, after you know, after a long career of of uh, of doing counterterrorism operations. Um, you know, in the 2016-ish timeframe, I was I was I was promoted to the senior intelligence service, and that is the equivalent of general officer in the military. I ended up, you know, when I finally retired, I was the equivalent of a four-star general. So I had a um, had had a hell of a career. But um, I moved from running counterterrorism operations, and they moved me to the deputy chief of operations in what we call the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. That's so I was responsible as the deputy for clandestine operations over you know almost 50 countries from Ireland all the way to the farthest time zones of Russia. But because Russia was so prominent at that time, um, and in particular, you know, uh, you know, after 2016 and, and with how Russia did interfere in our elections, um, I, I decided to make a trip to Moscow because I needed to have what's called area familiarization. That's really important. You know, okay. just for my credibility, I had to go out there, I had to meet the ambassador. Um, and in fact, I had to meet with my counterparts in the Russian security services, which sounds weird um, because they are, they are an enemy of the United States. But even the, during the darkest days of the Cold War, the CIA still met the KGB. You have to have those lines of communication open. So ultimately, uh, you know, during this ten-day, you know, area familiarization, non-operational trip, um, it was December of 2017 when I went, and you know, one night in a Moscow hotel, you know, something happened that really changed my life. I, I woke up, you know, with this incredible start. I had a stunning case of a vertigo, of tinnitus ringing in my ears, a brutal headache. I was physically, you know, getting sick, um, and and so you know, something had happened to me, and that that started a really kind of terrible medical journey. Um, uh, where, where ultimately I think that, you know, we, we've heard kind of the moniker used Havana syndrome, where yeah. there was attacks against U.S. officials in, in Havana, Cuba. I think the same thing happened to me. But ultimately, 
I had to retire by July of 2019 because I couldn't go to work anymore. Um, I could, you know, I'd lost a lot of cognitive abilities. I've gotten better now with a lot of treatment. I couldn't drive. Um, and my career was wrecked. And it was a career in which, um, and again, I say this humbly. And if you ever come to Northern Virginia, I'll take you down the basement. We can have a bourbon. I'll show you all the medals I have, you know, in the in kind of in my, you know, my, the, the I love you wall <laughs> that yeah. everyone seems to have. But I was, I was a really highly decorated officer, which was, I was really, you know, rising to the top. So I didn't want to retire. Um, but I had to. And unfortunately, the agency really uh, didn't provide me the medical care that I needed. So I started, you know, even after when I retired, it was, I went public at some point and really, you know, almost begged them for medical care. Finally, I got to Walter Reed's uh, 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 medical center, which is the U.S. military's preeminent, um, you know, medical facility. And I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury and I've gotten the care that I need to get better. So I'm talking to you now. But it was really an awful end of my career. Um, and, and so you asked about the leadership lessons. The clear leadership lesson on that was, you know, as, as a leader of any organization, you got to take care of your people. And unfortunately, CIA didn't take care of me when I needed them most. And it was, it was, it was a moral betrayal for me because um, everything that I'd given back or I had given to the agency, um, I don't blame the institution as a whole. I blame kind of select individuals, particularly sure. in the medical staff. So I got to make that clear. But, um, you know, it, it, you know it, uh, it, it, was, it was certainly unfortunate in the end. And the, the leadership lesson is very simply, take care of your people. You make a pact with someone to do dangerous things. If something goes wrong, you got to have their back. And they didn't for me. And that was really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, you, you hear stories um, about things that happen like this, um, working for the government. And you know that there's, you know, I mean, it, in, in one sense, I can, I can understand why they would not want something to be public, right? But even to take care of people and do it in a way where nobody knows can be done. Like there's so many things that we, Absolutely. we do, right? To, yeah. but, but this whole abandonment thing is like, that's not okay. Well, so, so you know, you think about it. And so, you know, and, and this is, of course, the whole Havana syndrome issue is enormously controversial. It, it drives me crazy. Now, it's actually not good for me to follow this very closely. Although I think, I'll, you know, there's a, there's a CNN special on Sunday night um, coming up where I'll be on that. Or they interviewed me quite some time ago. But, you know, but... But I think that you know it's 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 just it's it's a story of um, how not to treat your people, and yeah. it's such a basic leadership lesson. And I and, I, and, and you know to, to this day, you know I, I've had you know several directors of the CIA call me up, former directors, and they said I don't understand why they didn't give you medical care because if they had, this doesn't get splashed across, you know you know every every media outlet you know uh, on the planet, and so. You know, it's just, you know, you live and learn. Um, I've had, I've, I've really struggled with, you know, that idea of kind of moral injury because it's an organization I still deeply believe in. I remember I did an interview one time and I think this was with, with CNN and the, uh, it was, and Kylie Atwood, who's a fantastic journalist. Um, she was stunned afterwards and she had tears in her eyes and she said, how do you still like that place after how they treated you? But it's because I actually do believe in the job and the business. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lesson to this. And so, you know, if, if my being kind of noisy about this now, and it's, you know, I certainly have been over the last couple of years, if that can help someone get treatment, well, then I've done actually everyone a service. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I want to thank you for your service. I mean, oh, it, thank it's, you. what you've done for your country is an amazing thing. And um, I just wish that they would treat our people better when they come home. I think it's it's pretty appalling. They look, look. I mean, you have you have Agent Orange from Vietnam. You have, yeah. um, you know, Gulf War syndrome from the first Gulf War. You, you know, uh, John Stewart has been has been a huge proponent of getting U.S. veterans treatment for burn pits. I mean, there's a history of this where medical ailments occurred and the U.S. government didn't respond. And I think 
with the Vanna syndrome, you know, that story is, is yet to be told, but I think that's where we're going to go. And that's, and that's the result of being hit with a high energy weapon. Is yeah. that the theory or, that's or the theory? The, that's a theory. Yeah. yeah. Directed energy yeah. weapons with the United States has, it's all an open source as do the Russians. That's an open source as well. This is a, you know, this is not something that's, that's unusual uh, uh, in terms of what, you know, uh, uh, of, of who possesses this. I think the idea of using it against another human, um, which really causes debilitating injuries. And the thing that drives me crazy on this issue is that my, my colleagues who I know very well, these are people I serve with in the field, you know, have, have had to retire as I did, but some of them are much junior in their careers. And they're, 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 you know, crippled for life with huge cognitive issues, um, some physical as well. One of my colleagues, you know, is, is blind in one eye, needs, needs a service dog to, to walk. Um, uh, another has developed a, a rare form of cancer. Um, this is not an accident. And so I think yeah. ultimately, you know, we'll get to the bottom of this, but it's, 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 it's pretty gruesome what's happened to some of my colleagues. And, you know, as with, if, if it is a directed energy weapon, what a brilliant weapon, because it takes people off the battlefield in a way that's non-attributable. And, and, you know, it's uh, and, and certainly, you know, it's caused a lot of dissension and disarray within the U.S. national security establishment. Yeah, for sure. And, and then it requires how many people to take care of that person. Which right. Really, then right. it clogs up the system and it's that, yeah. that whole thing. Um, anyway, but, you know, anyway, I just want to thank you. Thanks for your service. This book is amazing. Again, uh, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Just want to show that up. Everybody needs to get this book. And I also think, you know, another thing that, that dawned on me, this is great, I think, to actually give out to their teams, Yep. right? So you not only just to teach from it and learn from it, but everybody begin to understand their own individual leadership role within companies themselves. So I wish you the best. I wish you the best. And I'd love to have you back at some point uh, as you continue on with your journey. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Great chat. Thank you. All right. Take care, man. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.